With the Seahawks coming off their fourth loss in five games, it's officially time to check the vibe. Can this team turn it around? Or is it time to start looking at the next chapter? Plus, things to watch for when betting on NFL games. Former Seahawks beat writer Joe Fan joins us to talk about all that and much more. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with producer Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? You know, I'm fantastic, Jackson. How are you? Four out of five. That's not how I'm feeling. It is how many dentists recommend Colgate toothpaste, but more importantly, it's how many games the Seahawks have lost. Four out of five. That's never happened since Russell Wilson came here. We got the starting QB hurt. They're trotting out arguably the worst performing defense in the NFL. Got to be honest, it's hard not to feel like everything they've built over the last decade is teetering on the edge. That being said, few teams have been as resilient over the last 10 years as Seattle has. And coming off an overtime loss, gearing up for their third straight primetime game, this one is going to be against the Saints on Monday night. The Seahawks find themselves on the verge of an identity crisis. Joining me to discuss that and more is the affable former Seahawks beat writer and current host of the Bet to Win podcast, Mr. Joe Fan. Joe, thanks for coming in. Hey, fellas. I was, I'm honored to have the invite. I got this weeks ago. I've had this marked on my calendar for a while now. You guys have been doing <laughs> a killer job with the podcast. Jackson, you know I'm a big fan of yours, man. It's been fun be, becoming friends a bit beyond just the Twitter sphere, but you've always crushed the cigar thoughts as your post-game column, and, and this being a podcast now is a, a, a long-awaited decision couple years too late, I would argue, but better late than never, man. I'm honored to be a part of it. <laughs> hey, thank you, Joe. Well, it means a lot coming from you, man, because you're crushing it out in Vegas. And uh, we'll get to that a little bit more. Uh, your your sports coverage career has, has given you a number of different opportunities already. I think a lot of that is just sort of the nature of the business these days. But uh, tell us how you went from getting your start a few years ago to now hosting one of the most popular sports gambling podcasts in the country. Oh, I appreciate that. I don't know if it's that popular, but but we'll tell ourselves it's that popular. It's been fun. It's been a fun pivot. Oh, it is. It's it uh, is. it's wild how my career is kind of twisted and turned. And I went to school in Southern California, and I came back to Seattle, and I interned for the Seahawks and Sounders, and that was when they were still. It was a the 2012 season, so it was Russ's rookie year, but I worked more with the Sounders than I did the Seahawks. Basically, there were two video guys. It's the same video guy who still still does all the digital stuff for the Seahawks. His name's Brian Pan. But that was when the ownership group and like the front office was the same for both um, in terms of like sales, digital team, partnerships. It was all shared until the Sounders broke off a couple of years later. Anyway, so I worked with the Sounders predominantly than just kind of Seahawks games. Anyways, from there, I worked at UW as a PA announcer for two years. Um, simultaneously, I spent eight months working for the Seattle Reign, the women's soccer team. I went to Nashville for a part-time job to work on that digital team, writing for their website. Went to the Niners for a similar job, but it was full-time. Uh, and at that point, I was ready to break free from the team side stuff and got my job with NBC Sports, which brought me back home to Seattle. Uh, I was there for two years. And to be honest, Jackson, I thought I was going to be there a long time. You know, I took that job yeah. and came home. You know, it was one of those kind of perfect storms, and I felt so lucky to be coming home that I was like, I don't know if I'll, I'll leave. You know, as long as they continue to like me and I, I enjoy doing it, I mean, this is a job that people do forever. I, I think beat reporting is such a great gig. Unfortunately, the only uh, partnership that 
NBC Sports Northwest had was with the Blazers and the Blazers jump ship to Root Sports and NBC just goes cut the cord um, on our RSN and, and basically our whole staff became free agents and I was left scrambling a bit and this popped up with Blue Wire and WinBet and it's been a fun pivot living down in Vegas is kind of a trip um, but I'm excited for the winter and uh, golf down here. Uh, which I'm looking forward to. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's been, you know, it's still just talking ball. You just add a line to it and, and what you kind of think is going to happen. I, I, I told them this when I interviewed, I will be the sports guy who bets. I'm not going to be the hardcore betting guy who also talks sports. That's just not my thing. I'm never going to be, here's my full slate on Sunday. Da, 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 da. You know, it's like, ah, I'm going to throw a dart at this team on Sunday. Cause I think they might, you know, it's, and I have fun with it. I mean, first and foremost, it's entertaining. And I don't want anyone to be coming at me like, oh, you're an idiot. It's like, I know. Why would you ever listen to what I have to say? You should. <laughs> you can bet the opposite. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. And and I want to talk a little more about that here in a second because you and Claudia do a wonderful job. And, and I find your role on that to be so refreshing because <clears throat> I've listened to a number of sports betting podcasts. And you do. You've got these sharps out there who are getting really technical with it, right? But I'm I'm a sports fan who likes to gamble and yeah. it's nice to, it's nice to get that perspective and have that legitimized before we get that though. I am curious because Vegas is a place we've all been for a few days at a time. We'll remember 30 to 50% of each trip, but what, <laughs> what's living there? Like, man, I mean, how different does that town feel when it's your home address versus somewhere you're just going to get crazy for a few days? You know, it's it's cool. I'm in Summerlin, which is about 15 minutes northwest of the Strip. So it's nice that I'm close enough to get to the studio, to get to the win in a reasonable time. Traffic's not bad at all, especially when you compare it to what Seattle's like, basically 24-7 now. It is bizarre, like, walking through the casino floor to the studio. You know, and you see people gambling at 8 a.m. It's just like, this is nuts. <laughs> um, but Summerlin's cool. There's a lot of great bars, restaurants. Uh, I joined a golf club down there. TPC Summerlin, right? just swinging your dick around. Well, I mean, I don't know if, if swinging your dick off is a good thing. I'm whatever the opposite is when they, they shut the course down for the PGA tournament that came by. I basically, am like trying to relearn how to play golf after that, just like two week hiatus, which is embarrassing, but for a minute it was good. And hopefully we'll get it back there. It's, it's, it's fun to play all the time. That's, that's for sure. Having played with you before, man, I, I'm sure your game is just fine. Joe fan for those uh, who are curious about, what the man golfs like, he hits the ball a fucking mile. It's insane. Awesome to watch, man. Super fun to golf with. He's also one of those guys who's good but doesn't take it too seriously, which is like the perfect playing partner. But getting back to getting back to gambling, uh, I want to pick your brain on this a little bit. <clears throat> we all know that the house always wins. Not, not every bet, right? But on aggregate over large enough sample size, the book's going to come out ahead or else it wouldn't be a viable business model. So tell us what you know about how a sports book goes, uh, goes about setting a line when they say, let's say, I, I actually haven't seen the line for this week's game. Do you know what it is? It's four and a half. The saints are four and a half points favorites. Right. Okay. So you've got, so for someone looking at a line and they see the saints minus four and a half, that means if you're betting that the saints have to win by at least five in order for you to win that bet. Correct. Correct. What's the process that a book goes through for arriving at that number? They try to limit liability. And there are times where, you know, if they're taking all the money on one side, they'll change the line. So if they're taking nothing but Saints money to cover, 
they'll boost the line to five, six, maybe even seven to, to just beg some Seahawks money to come in. For the most part, a lot of lines, a lot of games, are it's indifferent because they'll have enough on both sides to where they're either it'll be small loss or small win. What happens is is when you take, let's say, um, you take you don't take many bets on the Saints to cover, but they take a ton of money on the Saints money line. Then all of a sudden, the book is looking for the Saints to cover, or sorry, to win, but not cover. And money line for those um, who don't know just means you're betting on the Saints to win, or you're betting just on the betting Seahawks on them to win. to win, regardless of score. Correct. Yep. And this is super juiced to where it's minus two twenty, which means you'd have to lay down. 220 bucks to win if you're betting for the saints but let's go to last week for example the cowboys were in massive liability and they were four and a half or five point favorites and they weren't covering the entire game and it took a miracle cover to where the patriots scored at the end of regulation got a two-point conversion but then got the ball first in overtime and didn't score so the cowboys just needed a field goal and and by and large those teams go and kick field goals. You rarely see a touchdown in that because it needs it, it requires an explosive play that goes to the house. Well, that's what happened. C.D. Lamb was a 40-yarder, scores a touchdown, and a miracle cover. And the book just got absolutely demolished. <laughs> By and large, when favorites, when when a weekend is chalk and and favorites are not just winning, but covering, the book is getting smoked because then you have every Everyone who bet the spread wins. And then you have a bunch of people who do money line parlays with favorites because it's a very square bet. You take all the top favorites who are, you know, minus 200 plus, And if they all win, you know, your, your parlay pays plus four or 500. Um, and you put, you know, a decent amount of money on it, then it, it ends up, that adds up. So the book got obliterated because every favorite won and covered the Cowboys in miraculous fashion. I think that was what I talked to some of our traders. And we have traders with win bet that are they're like stockbrokers or like guys on wall street that are deciding where the numbers should be and, and raising it and lowering it and, and it's you know it's all sorts of arithmetic and spreadsheets and figuring out where that number should be i remember a couple of weeks ago was the the Bengals and packers it was minus three for the packers and a lot of books uh because they were getting so much action on the the Bengals dipped that down to, to two and a half to where when the packers won by three Everyone that bet on the Packers at minus three won. So our trading team told us that we bring them on the show every Monday. We bring one of our traders in, which is a unique aspect to recapping a weekend because we think about it from our end, right. from what we're sweating with our own picks. They're betting the they're they're sweating the entire slate <laughs> of needing specific results with each game. That seems like a healthy they have a, lifestyle. A best case scenario with every game based on where the liability is, and so. Um, they were talking about how they were really proud that they didn't move off of three because had they moved off of three, they would they took a, we we took a ton of Packers money that all would have won at, you know if they if they got it at minus two and a half with them ended up winning at three. So it is fascinating to learn kind of what that thought process is of it. And uh, you know I'm just I'm starting to get there. I'm not you know totally a savant with it, but it has been a lot of fun. You hear you hear whether a game is black black, and that means. You know, no matter what the result is, they're winning. But then they have games, especially if parlays have hit leading up to it and they know what their liability is and it's red, red. It just, it <laughs> depends how bad it's going to be. And the Cowboys result with that miracle cover ended up being a, a, an absolute bloodbath for the books. Man, that's, that's so fascinating. Like that's, that's a rabbit hole I could go down 
for an entire hour. But uh, do want to get to the Seahawks before we do. <clears throat> Just give me real quick, what is the biggest mistake that the average gambler makes when betting on an NFL game? Like, if you could give one piece of advice when picking lines. Oh, man. I don't know. I'm not a very good gambler. So <laughs> whatever, I do is the, whatever I do is the biggest mistake. Uh, yeah, I mean, parlay happy. Being parlay happy is a money suck. But, you know, I get that, too, because if you're betting modest amounts, you throw lottery tickets sure. out there. You know, you want to bet 10 bucks with a chance to win 1000 and it's crazy, but, you know, it's fun if you can get down the list and you potentially have a chance. But those add up for the books immensely, you know, $10 from you and then, you know, 10,000 others, sure. you know, you do the math. Um, I don't I don't know if there's a, a, I think betting outside your means is the biggest mistake people make. If, if it loses the fun, if it ruins your day that you lost a bet, there's your biggest mistake. That's a good rule right and there. And that's kind of perspective that I have tried to keep. It's, it should be entertainment. And I obviously you want to win, but it's entertainment value that you're watching a game that you otherwise wouldn't care about. And you have a player prop um, and you, you're just watching that one guy and you want to see him get over 62 and a half receiving yards. But as long as you're within your means, you know, every game is, is, especially with the spread is designed to be a coin flip. So if you're just betting spreads, I don't know if there's necessarily a, a bad practice as long as you're within your means. So there's my gamble responsibly pitch to everyone out there. I like that. I, I respect that for sure. Stay within your means folks. Now to a team that I can only imagine has been a huge headache for line setters over the years, the Seattle Seahawks. It is the team that brings us together. Uh, they fell short in a furious comeback attempt against the Steelers last week, uh, but they now find themselves at two and four. They're lagging way behind the Cardinals and the Rams in the NFC West. Obviously, this was Geno, first, Geno Smith's first start with the Hawks. What were your main takeaways from his performance? I thought he was fine. I thought he managed the game admirably. Until the end, he didn't have the big turnover. Um, the sack on third down at the, towards the end of regulation was brutal. That's unacceptable. I mean, a Russell Wilson-like back-breaking sack, <laughs> that's a loss of 10, takes you to field goal range. Uh -huh. That was after they got the fumble um, that from Ben Roethlisberger. You're thinking you have to get points here. They didn't get any. I thought he was fine. Um, I don't know if, if you could have expected much more. He gave the team a chance to win. I think the biggest frustration with this team is they're not good enough to not capitalize on opportunities to win late. And the fumble from Ben was one. Uh, not, you know, kicking field goals late instead of touchdowns. Um, and then obviously the Jamal Adams, you know, the, the throw that was right to him and hit him in the face. They're just not good enough to overcome not being able to capitalize on those when those opportunities arise. You look at the Titans game as one that was brutal. Um, the Seahawks get a fourth down stop in regulation. All you need to do is go kick a field goal, make it a two-score game. You can't do it. In overtime, your defense gets a stop, and you get the ball back. All you got to do is go kick a field goal. And I don't mean to trivialize it, but it, it, it sort of is trivial because we've seen it so much from Russell Wilson and this offense over the years. And that's the side of the ball you expect to carry this team. And so when they don't come through, when they get those opportunities – you know, yeah, at that point, you sort of deserve to lose because you're not good enough to make it through by giving, you know, playing with your food and giving, you know, these teams chance after chance to beat you. Yeah. You know, it's almost like they've gotten really comfortable over the years with just playing for a close end of the game and then trusting that they're going to make the play to win it in, in that high leverage situation. And I think they've been talented enough to count that 
count on the fact that in the moment, our guy is going to make the play uh, when they need to. And I, I, I just don't think they are anymore. And, and they gave themselves no margin really, you know, they were down 14, nothing at the half. And we knew that was a possibility. Gino looked great in relief against the Rams, but after a week as the starter and, and going against another good defense, he came out really flat. Uh, the throws were fluttering. He, he was calling timeouts with like 18 seconds left on the play clock, just kind of unsure of himself, jittery stuff. But then they came out in the third quarter and they just started running the ball. And I mean, it was like relentless for them. And I think Alex Collins, uh, I wrote it in the article. He had uh, 13 carries in the third quarter alone for 77 yards and a touchdown. And <clears throat> they ended up rushing for 144 yards at over five yards a clip compared to 165 passing yards at just over four yards per pass play. You want to talk about someone swinging their dick around? How do you think Pete Carroll was feeling after that third quarter? Totally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was just it was it was awesome to see. It also worries me a little bit, but I, I guess I kind of want to know, is this what we're going to see more of for as long as Gino is in there? And do you think that this emphasis on the run will continue when Russ comes back? We, we, I feel like we talk about this every year. Certainly last year when Russ had that turnover spree in the middle mm-hmm. of the season. If you can run the ball consistently the way they ran it in that third quarter, yes, run the ball every play. Totally. No one looks at the Ravens' offense and says they need to throw the football more when they're running, ripping off eight yards a carry with different dudes. They just have three different running backs scoring touchdowns. You look at the Niners uh, at their peak under Shanahan at, in 2019. Jimmy Garoppolo had like negative four pass attempts in the NFC Championship game against the Vikings <laughs> yeah. or the uh, Packers. And really, I guess there's sort of a similar script against the Vikings as well because they didn't have to throw it. Because they're ripping off 10 yards a carry. No one says don't run the football. People say don't run the football when it's two and a half yards, three yards, three and a half yards in a cloud of dust. And then you're you're forced to convert third and fours through, you know, third and four, third and five, third and six, maybe even third and seven on a consistent basis. That's not sustainable. Your goal as, a, as an offense should be to avoid third down altogether. Amen. And if you can Man, do that with a that. running game that gets you six plus yards a carry... Absolutely. Yep. They would have been silly to get away from Alex Collins there because they're absolutely tearing. You know, Alex Collins is in the secondary or the second level of defense before he's getting touched. So that's the difference. It is. And I hate the use of balance as people think balance as 50-50 run pass. Balance is getting all of your playmakers involved regularly. That's balance. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't matter if it's in the run game or the pass game. But you've got three to five to six different people who are a threat on a given play or a given series who are getting involved to where it's not just force-feeding one dude. You look at the, the Cardinals and why the Cardinals are so good right now. Last year you saw it was force-feeding DeAndre Hopkins, and it worked a lot. He put up ridiculous numbers. But now his numbers are modest, and he's still a beast. But A.J. Green's chipping in. Rondale Moore's a stud. Christian Kirk's still a stud. They've got two running backs with John, uh, uh, James Conner, and um, and Chase Edmonds, who are putting up numbers, that's balance. Yes, it's not run and pass play. It's how many guys are consistently a threat in your offense. And you look at Dallas and Arizona as perfect examples of of balance. The Seahawks don't have that. Even when Chris Carson's healthy, it's Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, or bust. And so you look at these tight ends. How do you get the tight ends involved? That to me is the issue. It's not oh they don't run the ball enough. 
I know I, I pivoted a bit from your question. Yes, I think that Pete Carroll is going to want to look at that and say, we need to do that more. Well, easier said than done. And good luck trying to rip off six and a half yards of carry. Totally. Drive well, in and drive out with Alex Collins. If you could do it, beautiful. You're going to win games that way. But yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see if if he's stubborn about it. I, I certainly anticipate over the next couple Pete weeks Carroll's him coming out stubborn? and trying to. Never. Nah, right? <laughs> never, never. But here's the here's the thing. You know, ever since halfway through last year, defense has been playing out of a safe cover two shell against the Seahawks, and the inability to beat that is ultimately what I think cost Brian Schottenheimer his job. They they never came up with a successful counterpunch to defenses just keeping two safeties deep, keeping you know, taking away the deep shot that has made Seattle's offense so dangerous. And and Seattle hasn't been able to do anything with that. And I think they tried to counterpunch that with their passing game for a long time. You know, next week's guest is a guy named Matt Nichols. He's a former national champion offensive lineman and, and really one of the more brilliant X's and O's guys that I've ever met. And we were talking about it last year, and I was so frustrated by the fact that really one of the simplest defenses in football – was just confounding an offense with as much talent as Seattle has. He said the only consistently effective way to beat cover two is to run the ball effectively because you have to bring the safeties up closer to the line of scrimmage. And if those front seven guys are just stopping the run, then the safeties don't have to do anything except for hang back and make sure no one gets over the top of them. And what we saw in the third quarter, what we saw all game was Pittsburgh playing that cover two shell and just saying like, yeah, go ahead, Gino, throw it into tight windows in front of us. We dare you. And when they got that running game going, it really did force the safeties to come up. And in the fourth quarter, as they came up, we saw the running game kind of go away. They didn't really run the ball very effectively uh, in the fourth quarter. They got over 50% of their total yards in the third quarter as far as on the ground. So it's going to be interesting to see if Gino, we know Russ can do it, but if Seattle's going to run well enough to bring those safeties up closer to the linebackers. Does Gino have the arm talent to make the deep throws that, like I said, have made Seattle as scary offensively as they have been for stretches with Russell Wilson? Yeah, I don't know if I'm if I'm banking on the explosives in the passing game from Gino. I just don't know if you're hitting home runs with him at quarterback. Maybe, but I think there were opportunities last week where he had a chance to let it fly and he tucked it and either took a sack or checked it down or threw it away or I don't know. I, I just, I don't know if he's confident in it. I don't know if Shane Waldron and Pete Carroll are comfortable with him trying. I hope so. I mean, given your weapons, it's one of those things. The issue with losing your quarterback is it almost makes you lose your top pass catchers as well because they're so reliant on someone delivering the football and so, I mean, you look at Allen Robinson and how much of a, you know, statistics-wise, no, he's still managed to put up pretty good numbers, but he is a better receiver than his numbers would show. But that's what the issue is, being a receiver. And now you look at Seattle having two of their best players or receivers, and what they are going to be able to do is going to be limited based on who is throwing them the football. So, no, I, it's a long way of saying I wouldn't bank on seeing especially against the talented saint secondary you know him letting it fly and at least even giving it a shot i'm not sure if he'll even try one i hope yeah. just to see you you gotta but, you gotta think that he's just don't turn the ball over has got to just be getting hammered into his head 
right? Like that's, that's every coach's thing, right? Don't turn the ball over. But with Carroll, especially, I mean, he's willing, we've seen it so many times. He's willing to pull the reins tight. If he feels like you're getting a little too loose with the ball. And, and I just, I like you have a hard time seeing Gino gamble the way that, you know, Russ has made enough big throws, made hundreds of incredible big time throws. He's earned the right to take his shots and he doesn't turn the ball over. He's one interception this year against 11 touchdowns. He, he had that little stretch last year, but he's, he's never been a high turnover guy. We've been talking about betting lines. If you two were to set the betting line, the over under for number of times, Pete Carroll has told Geno Smith, it's all about the ball over the past two weeks. <laughs> what would you say? I'm taking that? the, over. I'm taking the over, whatever number Joe puts on it. I'm taking the whatever over. Whatever you said it at. <laughs> Whatever you said it at, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I would yeah. agree. Well, if that's the case, then and and Seattle is keeping it close to the vest on offense this week. It's going to put a lot of pressure on the defense, and I got to say that they looked they looked better against Pittsburgh. Um, they held them at 345 yards, a little less than five yards per play, which is excellent. Um, it is in line with how Pittsburgh offense has been all year, but it was encouraging to see. Joe, when you were watching that game. Did you get the sense that we were seeing the defense start to turn the corner a little bit, or was this just a product of playing another offense without a real deep threat behind center? Yeah, I just I think Ben Roethlisberger is so cooked mm-hmm. that it's hard because you don't want to take it away from the Seahawks defense. They got some clutch stops down the stretch. They got a stop in overtime. <sighs> you know, I I just have a hard time. It's not like you saw the pass rush come alive. It's not like you saw, I mean, you feel really encouraged by what you saw from Trey Brown and DJ Reed. Big time. Those guys were both challenged regularly by Ben Roethlisberger. And there are still talented pass catchers on that team with Chase Claypool um, and Deontay Harris. But I don't think I came away from that game thinking, oh, they, they turned the corner. Maybe. Maybe I'm being too pessimistic, but I think we've seen enough evidence over the course of the last two years that they these guys struggle against good offenses no matter what. And and to their credit, most defenses do. There aren't a lot of good defenses in the NFL these days. Right. So that's that is important perspective. You can't bank on elite de- defensive play from pretty much anybody. I mean, the Ravens got smoked by Carson Wentz, then they show up and and dominate Justin Herbert, which was bizarre. The Browns we thought had one of the best defenses in football. They've gotten carved up two weeks in a row by the Chargers and the Cardinals. So I don't want to be too hard on the defense and, and take away what was a good game to where you're killing them if they do bad and you're killing them if they do well. It was an impressive game from them, all things considered. I just I don't think I, I think they figured anything out. Yeah, it's just tough for me to get past the fact that the quarterbacks they've looked good against this year are Carson Wentz, Jimmy Garoppolo slash Trey Lance, and now Ben Roethlisberger. And then they've been absolutely killed by Ryan Tannehill, Kirk Cousins, and Matthew Stafford. Those are three good quarterbacks. I know that Tannehill and Cousins aren't super sexy names, but those are really good quarterbacks with really good receivers to throw to. And and the Niners, the Colts, the, the Steelers, those are offenses that have really struggled in the passing game this year. You're, you're right in that, you know, we can't count on a great defense from anybody, certainly not Seattle. Even... And, and, and to that point, even with this being such an offense-centric NFL these days, Seattle's been pretty bottom of the barrel. 
I, I don't think that their true talent is as bad as what we saw like in that Minnesota game where they couldn't cover anybody. But I don't necessarily think they're quite as good as they looked against the Niners and, and the Steelers. And, and it's an ever-evolving thing, right? Like We tend to just assume that this player or this team or this unit is a fixed value. But like you just mentioned, you know the, the Ravens can go from shutting down a great offense one week to getting completely torched by a mediocre one. And that's true for pretty much every team. There just isn't a defense that goes out and shuts everybody down. I mean, the Bills had been shutting everybody down. And what, the Titans put 20, 34 on them on Monday night. So, yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, but the one thing that I did like from the defense this past week, and again, I don't know if it's just because they weren't worried about getting beat deep or, or what, but it seemed like they let the secondary be the secondary and take care of coverage and just let the linebackers go get the ball. And and I'm going to include Jamal Adams in that. They had uh, Bobby Wagner, Jordan Brooks, Jamal Adams, keeping their eyes forward at all times. It's just been driving me crazy seeing any one of those three guys having to cover these giant pockets of field, 25 yards you know, downfield because they're just not built for that. No, linebackers aren't. Uh, and, and the result was we saw 36 total tackles from those three players. Do you think that that's something we see a little bit more of keeping Wagner, Brooks, Adams up closer to the line of scrimmage and and putting some faith in the secondary to just do their job? I think you have to. Otherwise, we've seen the results. If you're not going to make that switch, it doesn't work. You can't just concede first down after first down with the with the idea of we're keeping them in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm all for you know cover three. You make them work for it. Give them a little bit, but you just anticipate, you know, that was the thought with the Legion of Boom when they're giving you three, four, five, six yards, not 15 yards, <laughs> yeah, and easy right. first down after easy first down. Yeah. It's a, it's not the same thing. Uh-huh. I get the concept is the same, but the execution and the personnel you have is not the same. So you can't operate the same way. I like what I see from, from D- DJ Reed. We've always known plays confident. He's not afraid of the moment. And Trey Brown seems very much the same way. What are their actual ceilings? Who knows? But at least they can be competitive and have a little bit of swag while they try to do it. They'll talk a little bit of smack. It doesn't feel like they're in their heads from play-to-play basis and worried that you know it's all going to go to hell and they've got to give this massive cushion because they don't trust in their instincts enough, their abilities enough to stick with a guy. That's what I felt like I saw so much from, from Trey Flowers was he didn't trust himself to have that ability to line up, go mono mono and not get torched. The, the most obvious one to me, and this might have even been if DJ was on that side when that play happened, but you know the, against the Vikings, they need one first down. It's third down, third and long, and Justin Jefferson standing all by himself 12 yards down the field near the right sideline, easy first down, and you're just thinking, how? Yep. How on that play yep. where you can't give up a first down does he have, sure, it's a good route. Was it a great route? Probably not. So long-winded way of saying that I do think you're going to see more of what you saw against the Steelers just because the alternative, we know how that movie plays out. Yeah, and I, I think moving forward, I mean, we're we're playing, you know, we've got a, a Saints game coming up, and this isn't the Drew Brees Saints anymore. It's the polar opposite. You know, we've got pure YOLO ball coming to Seattle. and And I think this is the game where you say, you know what? We're going to gamble on a mistake-prone quarterback in Jameis Winston, knowing that 
you know what? There's going to be times where he's just going to chuck it deep and their guy's going to go get it and it's going to be a big play. But what I don't want to see is them giving a quarterback like Winston easy throws because anybody can make those. The way that you beat Jameis Winston is you force him to try and make, he's going to gamble. He is always going to gamble for the big time throw. And I think you have to kind of invite that. And especially with their receivers, Michael Thomas isn't back yet. They're still running out Marquez Callaway and Juwan Johnson. I mean, these are not scary receivers. The scariest guy on that offense is Alvin Kamara. I would rather see us up and challenging him and making Winston beat us over the top and trusting that, uh, DJ Reed and Trey Brown and uh, Quandre Diggs can go make some plays in the secondary. And I'd, I'd like to see us turn Jamal Adams loose a little bit. I mean, it was encouraging that he was up on the line of scrimmage all game, but he was always lined up on the right side of the defense. He was always telegraphing just a straight pass rush. He was never, they never disguised anything with him. And I'm, I'm really tired of seeing such a vanilla approach to the defense. Like, I cannot imagine a less imaginative defense than what Ken Norton Jr. has been putting out there. And I think against quarterback like Winston, who is going to take his shots, this is the time to really try and mix things up. I don't see how they win this game without turning him over a couple of times. It's just hard to envision that happening. You need a couple of short fields. That, that defense on New Orleans side is good enough to where they're going to make you work for it. Sustaining long drives and scoring touchdowns after punts isn't going to happen, especially in lieu of the fact that the explosive plays aren't going to be what they were or what they normally are with Russ at quarterback. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's going to be something where the defense is going to have to make big plays, not just stops. That's what we've been banking on for years now is just get us stops. But it's time to start turning the ball over. It's time to start sacking the quarterback. You've got a quarterback who invites both of those things if you're willing to take the risk, if you're willing to to step into that arena. And and I hope that that's what we see. How do you see this offense lining, uh, uh, taking advantage of the Saints? You were talking earlier, you don't see the, the deep shot. Are we in line for just counting on drives where they're going to have to get four or five first downs in a row in order to score points? I think so. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how it's going to be a ton different than what you saw against Pittsburgh. I just don't know how it would be. Is D. Eskridge back in this game? No, he's on IR, so he's still out. So yeah, it's going to be Chris Carson potentially still out. It looks like he's going to be. So looks like Alex Collins is going to play. I don't know if you're going to see a ton different than what, what... the hell are you talking about, gentlemen? It's the Rashad Penny game. <laughs> Penny oh, back there, our savior. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. The discourse is alive and well. <laughs> Oof. Four, four years later, I'm baby. I'm so pumped you brought that up. I was hoping someone would bring up Rashad Penny. It was, yeah, it was a laughable use of draft LJ capital. LJ Collier is a healthy scratch rooting him on from yeah. the side. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, it was, a, it was a terrible use of draft capital. That being said, his two games before the injury, he had like 280 total yards. So we like, we're starting to see it. two seasons ago, though. <laughs> we'll, we'll see, man. I, I just, I feel like, this is another 23 to 20 type of game in the making. And I don't love that. I think, I think that this is a team that needs splash plays to win. I don't think it's a control the game in order to win. Here's my question to you, Joe. If Seattle loses two and five, is this officially a lost season for them? Or is there still enough time? 11 games left, turn it around, make a playoff push. There is time. Literally there's time. 
but what are the odds? Uh huh. Not great. It's tough. I think what's hard about where this team is at and where fans should be feeling, how fans should be feeling about where this team is at, is the doomsday scenario is staring everyone in the face right now. It's not this hypothetical, if things go south, maybe this happens, maybe that happens. Like It's coming. And it's almost here. The panic button has, has been found. Maybe it hasn't been hit yet, but it's, it is within arm's, arm's length. Ready to ready to smash. There's just too many good teams in the NFC. There's too many good teams in your own division to to think that like a massive even when Russ comes back that a massive turnaround is going to happen. Possible, sure. Something worth banking on, probably not likely. Two and five is a tough place to be. It is. It is, man. I mean, even with ten games left at that point, the way that the rest of the division is getting away from them. It's it's going to be really tough to, I mean, the nice thing is there's an extra playoff seed now, you know, and so can they be the seventh best team in the conference? I I think that's possible. I'm I'm so hesitant to be like, yep, this is it. I mean, it feels that way right now, like this, like they are staring into the abyss. I mean, there are, there are some winnable games there. There are Jacksonville, no matter who's playing quarterback, should be a win. Yep. And you have Green Bay and Arizona. You get Washington. Should be a win. Team's mm-hmm. a mess. Mm-hmm. You get the Texans and you get the Lions. Those are those. Are, there's four. So that gets you to six. Yeah, exactly. You need to find. You need to find at least three others, probably four others that you're winning as well, because you're going to look at tiebreakers. Because the Vikings are going to get to that same that same level where they're at you know nine and nine and eight, I guess at that point with sixteen or seventeen games. So I think it's going to take. 10 to do it yeah i think so and they're they're running out of time to do it. 10 that's eight more wins man <laughs> that's, that's it's a lot of it's a lot of wins that's a lot of wins and, th- and that's the thing is like there's a big part of me that's like you know don't don't push the panic button it's it's early we've seen this team start two and four b- before uh you know that was 2016 that was a very different roster and you know that at some point they're going to win three out of four games and the the feeling around it is going to be different, but, but as an overall, how much different, I don't how know. That's going to be, that's going to be curious. We, because we have, if the bottom falls enough, three out of four is irrelevant. All you're doing at that point is you're happy that the jets don't have a top 10 pick, right? right. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's the issue. I know it's, it's not, you look at a lost season. The Niners had a lost season a couple years ago when Jimmy tore his ACL in Kansas city in week three, I was there. I was at Arrowhead when that happened and you say, okay, it's a lost season. But the silver lining is you get the second overall pick and Joey, or not Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa falls in your lap. Right. And you've got one of the best pass rushers in football for the foreseeable future. You come back with Jimmy. You feel like you're ready to go to a Super Bowl. And they do. Mm-hmm. This is different. It is. Like you said, what they've built over the last 10 years, it's teetering. Teetering is the perfect word. And it could very easily crumble at the end of this season to where Russ is gone or Pete is gone one of the two, yeah. you're figuring out how to recoup draft capital. What do you do with Jamal Adams? You have to get a new defensive coordinator. And you're not, it's a lost year in a very different sense than what the Niners had in what, 2018. Totally. No, I, I agree. It, it reminds me, um, I've got some investor clients that I work with who do what's called 1031 tax exchange. And all it basically means if you sell an investment, you don't have to pay the capital gains taxes on it if you reinvest those profits into a similar investment within a certain amount of time. And what you're really doing, you're not 
avoiding paying capital gains tax. You're just kicking it down the road. You got to pay it at some point when you stop doing these exchanges. And I feel like that's how John Schneider has been treating this, is they had this massive profit from these incredible drafts that they had 2010 through 2012. And they're building around all these Hall of Fame players. And then they've just been chasing it. Instead of just paying the tax when when those players started retiring or leaving the team and saying, yep, okay, we're just going to pay the tax on it, get some higher draft picks, rebuild through that way. Nope, we're going to go get Jimmy Graham. We're going to go get Jamal Adams. We're going to trade our first round picks. We're going to do all of these things to just stay competitive. And at some point, the capital gains tax is going to go up. It's not saying at 15% forever. And we've seen it go up now for Seattle. And at some point when they say, okay, this is the end of the road. We can't stitch this together anymore. You're right. They don't have a bunch of great picks waiting for them. They don't have a bunch of cap space to go out and turn this thing around quickly. They're, they're stretched thin. And it makes the vibe a little bit tougher to figure out because if you're Pete Carroll and John Schneider, I don't know how you reset at this point. I don't either. And that's why it feels so grim. That's why I said, you know, the doomsday scenario exists because they're left without much draft capital or cap space. So if you're trading away a quarterback to get back draft capital and free up cap space that you lost after paying Jamal Adams and trading two first rounders for him, that's going to be a tough scenario for Seahawks fans to swallow. You look at one of the biggest issues with this team, and I think the reason why they went on got Jamal Adams in the first place was because a series of not just bad but terrible drafts mm-hmm. caught up to them where they don't have young guys overperforming and outplaying their contracts. And you have older guys who might not be worth what they once were. Bobby Wagner is a perfect example. He's probably not a $20 million linebacker anymore. That contract was always going to age poorly, but they had to pay it because it's Bobby Wagner and you need him on the field and he's still one of your best players, still a damn good football player, likely going to lead the league in tackles again. And it's sort of a a career achievement um, contract. Every team has him across the board. But good teams have young dudes on rookie deals to varying levels outperforming that rookie deal. And the Seahawks don't have nearly enough of that. Yeah, totally. And and the issue we're dancing around here is whether Russell Wilson sticks around. And as, as a vibe check to you, someone who has been around this team, been close. I, obviously, I'm not asking you to get inside of Russell Wilson's brain or, or anything like that. The nano bubbles won't let you get in there anyway. But we're talking about a player that is maniacally obsessed with his legacy, right? Like he, under, he's accomplished enough as an individual player. He's going to go down. He, he's a hall of famer. He's minted, but he wants to be the best. He wants to be talked about like Tom Brady. And in order to do that, he has to win super bowls. It's getting harder for me to imagine him tying the next four years of that legacy as he's starting to run out of prime years to Pete Carroll. Do you, do you see a way that this season goes where Russell Wilson's like, yep, this is my spot. This is where I finish my legacy. Not with Pete Carroll as head coach. Yep. That would be my prediction, yep. especially if this is the path it's going down. My analogy I made all offseason long, and fans told me I was an idiot, and I was peddling this riff that didn't exist. I'm the bad guy, media guy. That's okay. I have said... These are, these are two sides that went to couples therapy and they came out saying, we're going to give it one more shot. And I genuinely believe they were arm in arm saying, we're going to give this shot and we're going to put everything into this season and then reevaluate after. Well, based on the first quarter of the season, 
it's not going to go the direction of the marriage flourishing once again and them living on with a long-term relationship. So I think it's going to get to a rock and a hard place where Jody Allen's going to have to make the call. Do you keep your quarterback or do you do you move on from your head coach? Because I, I just don't think both are going to be able to coexist in Seattle for multiple more years. I feel the same way. And, and personally, it's going to be difficult for me if ownership chooses to stick with the 70-year-old coach instead of the 32-year-old Hall of Fame quarterback. That's going to be a tough one for me to swallow as as a Seahawks fan. If Russ stays and they bring in a new coach, yes, there is a chance that coach is much worse. But there is a 100% guarantee that the next quarterback is worse than Russell Wilson. Correct. And again, you look at teams with good, not great quarterbacks. I call it Andy Dalton syndrome. Is when you have someone who you could do much better than, but you could also do much worse than Baker Mayfield. How much the Browns would rather have Kyler Murray than Baker. You mentioned Kirk Cousins, a guy who's sort of been in that tier his whole career, where he has moments of great, but but is not necessarily one of the top guys in football. Replacing Russell Wilson is an impossibility. He's the best player in franchise history. So then what? And that's going to be a really tough, you know, reality and gut check for this franchise. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's hard to see how Pete Carroll flourishes without it. If they choose, like, hey, Pete Carroll's our guy. We believe we believe that he's the one that's going to get us back over Russell Wilson. I, it's almost impossible for me to imagine some new quarterback coming in and and really flourishing while Pete Carroll is still the coach. So that is going to be really really interesting to watch. And <laughs> it's a topic we could spend the rest of the evening uh, chatting about, but. Um, you and know, we'll I, spend the rest of the season chatting we, about it. We will. No doubt. We, and it the offseason. I mean, this is an undercurrent. <laughs> yeah, this, it is. This, this storyline is an undercurrent of everything that's happening. It was always going to be the case. This is always going to be one of the most pivotal seasons in franchise history, and that is not an exaggeration or hyperbole given the run of success they've been on, the figureheads at the top, and what potentially is coming at the end of it. It's the biggest inflection point the franchise has seen in a long time. Totally. Yep. And it, and it needs to be said, we we have to be honest about that. You know, we, we got to be honest about where we're at as, as a franchise. They need to make some really, probably the toughest decision that the franchise has ever had to make. They're going to have to make that here in the next 12 Certainly to 18 Jody months. Jody Allen's ever had to make. Yeah. Yeah. The leader of this team. Totally. Totally. Well, I, I would say that's a, a good spot to wrap up for now. Joe, I know uh, this conversation is going to continue between you and I over the next number of months, but appreciate you giving us some time on air. Before you go, what's your favorite bet or two uh, for this weekend with the NFL? Like if, if listeners are just like, you know what? I got 100 bucks. I'm going to put it on something. Where, where are you going with it? So I like the Bengals to, I like the Bengals to cover six and a half against the Ravens. Uh, that to me is a safe bet. I'm I'm a conservative better, so I like to tease games. It's basically a safe parlay, but you can get kind of the same effect as a parlay. And there's a ton of numbers here that you that you love uh, from a, a teaser standpoint. I like the Bengals to cover outright. I also like the Panthers to cover outright, even though they're going to make you sweat more than you should um, on the road against the Giants. Um, I like the Raiders at home against the Eagles. Uh, but you look at at teasing sides. If you want, if you if you feel like the Seahawks can keep it close, you tease it a six point game, tease it up over to get a ten and a half. You feel good about that. Uh, the Bengals are a good number; you get them over ten. The Titans uh, at five right now. I like that number in general um, against the Chiefs, the team that can't stop the run at all. Um, but a six point teaser gets them up over ten. So those are some of the numbers I like. 
I usually go the teaser route again because I'm a conservative better. But, um, you know, I think it's uh, it's always fun to kind of look at this late and, and anticipate how it's going to go. And I would always say, that's my other piece of advice to betters is don't just take other people's word for it. Get your own gut feel. Do your own research into it and make sure it's a play that you feel confident in, not just based on what some jabroni that lives in Vegas who hosts a <laughs> podcast says. Uh, I love it. I love it. Well, listen, uh, as always, I want to thank everybody who's listening for supporting the show, whether you're doing that here on Twitter, Facebook, through the reviews you guys have left. And of course, reading the column every week. And I really want to thank Joe for joining us. Joe, tell the people where they can find you. Yeah, on Twitter at Joe underscore fan. Uh, appreciate everyone who stuck with me uh, in Seattle down with this new venture. Obviously, still talking a bunch of Seahawks football every time they're on. Been hosting some Twitter spaces and all that. But uh, it's been a fun new journey. Twitter's the same. Check out the Bet to Win podcast. Listen to Cigar Thoughts. Head over. Check out Bet to Win as well. Uh, that's W-Y-N-N because get it. Win, uh, win bet. Bet to win. It's a sick play on words. We're creative <laughs> as fuck. So... Uh, anyways, Jackson, uh, Mike, I appreciate you guys having me. This has been a ton of fun, as always. Uh, it's an honor to get the invite, and uh, look forward to chat with both of you guys soon. That's a strong hour, man. Thank you very much. And then, folks, you can, as you know, you can find me on Twitter at Jackson Bevins. Remember, that's J A C S O N. Mike is at at Mike Barwin. If you really want to just get a little bit weird, he's the guy to follow. Uh, the show is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. And of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. We are now doing the uh, Cigar Thoughts reading of the article after every game. So the following morning, you'll be able to listen to the article in case you don't have time to sit down, pop the laptop open and read it. You can listen to it at work, <clears throat> on the go, wherever you get your podcasts, um, you'll be able to find that. We're also doing pregame Twitter lives. Uh, you know, we've done that last couple of weeks. It's been awesome to see you guys tuning in for that. So we're going to have another one right around 445 on Sunday. So make sure you're online for that and following at Cigar Thoughts on Twitter. Get in on there, ask questions, and uh, we'll do our best to answer them live. And if you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, I'm really proud of and grateful for the tremendous amount of effort that goes into the show every week. What Mike is doing behind the boards is really incredible. I, I just, I'm so appreciative of that. And this feedback is really important to us as we continue to grow and improve. So thank you for that. <clears throat> and that'll do it for today. Uh, we will be right back here next week with Matt Nichols. He's a former all-conference offensive lineman, captain of the national champion Pacific Lutheran University Lutes. Also one of the most insightful football minds I've ever been blessed to know. So make sure you tune in for that one. Until then, onwards and upwards, my friends. Yeah.